Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International podcast. If this is your first time here, this is a podcast produced for Strategy International, a global think tank uh, that works with brilliant minds all over the world, discussing, analyzing uh, and researching uh, matters of interest, such as uh, international relations, defense, strategy, economy, environment and much, much more. I encourage you to go over to strategyinternational.org to learn more about this global think tank and the amazing work that is being done over there. Speaking of incredible minds, we have another uh, incredible guest again today with us, uh, Mrs. Inoa Fenduli. She is the executive director of the Institute of International Relations in Greece. This is a leading uh, university research institute uh, affiliated to the Department of International and European Studies at the Pantheon University of Social and Political Sciences. Um, you know, thank you for being with us. Thank you for uh, for coming on the program. Really appreciate it. George, uh, this is my great pleasure because I, I have been among the first people in Greece supporting Strategy International in my previous capacity, considering it a great initiative launched at that time by Mario Sefimiopoulos in Thessaloniki. So it's a great pleasure that strategy uh, developed to become an international uh, think tank and consultancy. And I'm glad that we are to, uh, with you today to discuss issues of common interest and concern. It's a, it's a great pleasure to have you. Uh, let's jump right in. Uh, firstly, explain to the people listening or watching what is the Institute of International Relations in Greece, the importance uh, it has had, and of course, you know, the collaborations that you've developed? Thank you, George. Uh, the Institute of International Relations is a leading research institute affiliated to the University of Political and Social Sciences, uh, best known in Greece under the name Pandion University. Uh, it is closely linked to the Department of International Relations and European Studies of this uh, university. And we have, we have a, a big number of researchers, students, undergraduate and postgraduate. And we are trying to, to analyze and present the main trends of the international scene. Uh, Greek foreign policy, strategic issues, and regional uh, regional problems. Uh, fantastic. A and it's great to have you here with the expertise that you have because uh, we're going to focus a lot on Greece's recent developments, um, both internally and regionally. A and just before we get started, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit because I was reading some articles recently on Greece's um, developing economy. Um, it it's it's uh, it's. No it you know, a lot of people are noticing what's happening in Greece. Uh, the unemployment has been under 10%, I think, which is the lowest since 2009. Of course, you know, in certain other countries, 10% is still considered a high unemployment rate. But considering Greece's recent uh, economy, uh, the fact that it's dropped under the 2009 uh, levels is, is quite an achievement. Uh, its economic growth has exceeded the EU average. They're projected to grow over 2% this year. What do you think this is? you know, this progress has has been attributed to? 
Look, I think that, first of all, I mean, it's a reaction to the previous decade, which was a very bad decade for Greece, as you may remember. And it was unfortunate what happened. But uh, Greece was not treated fairly, I would say, by bigger nations of the European Union. Greece is a dynamic society uh, with many young people, uh, very good brains. And we were... Uh, we were lucky enough, let's say, to, to have a very, a very good uh, management of the economy following uh, 2000, uh, 2019 elections and uh, the current government, uh, because, I mean, they are liberals in economics and they boosted, let's say, the uh, extra extraverted uh, direction of, of the Greek economy. Of course, tourism helps a lot. But I don't think uh, we, we, we only have tourism as the main pillar of the economy. We have many startups, we have high technology. Uh, hopefully we can have energy exploitation in the coming years. So it's a very, very it's, as you said, it's an achievement. And uh, hopefully, I mean, it will be sustainable because, you know, uh, we live in an area that is affected by the Ukrainian crisis and other crises in the Mediterranean and the Middle East. And, and we're going to get to those because that's very important. But I want to go back to what you're saying about the brilliant minds that Greece has, because I was reading an article a few years ago that was exposing, you know, quite a serious problem. Uh, there was this huge exodus of Greece's, you know, quote unquote future, you know, the young students, the young professionals, young families, they were obviously leaving Greece because of the situation, the economic situation. I know in recent years, there have been efforts by the government, whether directly by the prime minister or the minister of foreign affairs or even consular services all over the world to attract these individuals back to Greece. Have you seen any waves of Greeks coming back home and establishing themselves and contributing to this development? Look, I, I, I don't think, I, I cannot speak of waves because I, I'm not aware of, I mean, we had a, a, a brain drain, that's for sure. Now we are having a brain gain. It's also true. But let me tell you my approach because I am a cosmopolitan. Uh, if we are in the European Union, and Greece is a member of the European Union, we cannot consider uh, a person, a talented person, going to work to another country of the European Union. That, I mean, it's something, it's a loss. It's as, I mean, you go from uh, Seattle to California, for example. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, the, 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 the income for Greece is the important because people are moving, especially young people are moving around. We are not sitting anymore in the same place, in our offices and so on. So we have to also evaluate mobility and uh, discuss how, I mean, these people can help Greek economy from where they are. I mean, investment, can be in Greece, but people working for uh, an activity cannot be in Greece. Right, right. Uh, let's get to international relations, which is obviously your specialty and what you've been working on for a number of years. Um, 
you know, one of one of Greece's most alarming matters when it comes to international relations is the East Mediterranean. Um, it, it's pretty common, of course, to see tensions, you know, come and go in different waves. But in the last maybe two, three years, those tensions have been, I would say, at alarming levels. Um, one of these reasons, uh, you know, in this is this ongoing dispute over the exclusive economic zones. Um, of course, there's many other uh, issues as well that we can discuss. But, you know, for the people listening or watching that aren't very familiar, can you explain this concept of, you know, economic, uh, exclusive economic zones and how it has become problematic for Greek-Turkish relations? Yeah, uh, this is an old issue, of course, uh, going back to, to the 70s. But as you said correctly, uh, since 2020, Turkey has developed a rhetoric and some uh, maritime activities that are putting in, in, in doubt uh, Greece's territorial uh, uh, sovereignty, I would say. Territorial sovereignty, uh, the, the extent of the territorial waters and the maritime zones. I mean, why this is happening? Because in Turkey, you had this blue homeland uh, theory, which was developed by former militaries, uh, pretending that uh, Turkey is not only a land uh, power, but also a sea power. The thing is that Turkey has not signed the international uh, uh, the international uh, framework for, for the law of the sea, which is a, a universally accepted framework uh, defining its country's rights for exploitation of the maritime zones. Greece has signed this, what we call agreement, okay, because it's, it, it's, it's a legal framework endorsed by the United Nations created and endorsed by the United Nations. So uh, Turkey is not recognizing this framework. Greece is, and Greece has signed similar agreements with Albania and Italy. Uh, so I don't see from the Greek point of view any problem to discuss with Turkey the delimitation of the maritime zones. But it takes two to tango. So it, it, it's up also to Turkey to sit down and discuss with the Greek government uh, how we are going to uh, exploit a, an apparently very rich underground uh, with the Aegean and the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, so I hope that after the, the elections in Turkey and in Greece, uh, it may be a window of opportunity for the two countries to sit down and discuss these issues. But in addition, I would say, it's not only a bilateral issue. It's, if, uh, if you, you allow me to say, it's a multilateral issue because the energy resources of the Eastern Mediterranean are not only uh, Greece or Turkey, it's also Cyprus, Egypt, Israel, and Lebanon. So in my view, it would be more productive if all these countries 
sit down and accept a common framework for the exploitation of the resources, exploration first and, and then exploitation, uh, by respecting uh, each other's legal rights. Yeah, and what you're saying, it's very difficult to achieve that since from the get-go, Turkey hasn't really ratified that uh, uh, that agreement. It's interesting what you're saying, and it obviously makes sense in an ideal world for all these countries to sit down and and figure out a way to 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 collaborate. But it feels like the, you know the East Mediterranean is one giant you know chess game where everyone is kind of positioning their pieces. Greece, as you mentioned, resolved a, a long-lasting issue with Italy and Albania, as well as uh, as well as Egypt. They've signed uh, interesting agreements with the Emirates, uh, Saudi Arabia, as well as Israel. You know, these countries have all expressed certain uh, issues against Turkey. Meanwhile, Turkey is signing illegal trade agreements with Libya. They're they're expanding their influence further into Asia with what certain people might referred to as uh, as questionable governments like Azerbaijan and Pakistan. The formation of these different dynamics, is it worrying? Is it a sign of more troublesome times to come? Look, this is a real question and a real uh, concern for us here in the Mediterranean. But uh, what I'm saying is that there are two ways. Is for Turkey, if we are talking about Turkey, because all the other countries, uh, they don't have any problem to agree on, on a framework of, of joint, let's say, exploration and exploitation. But all the other countries in this equation respect each other's right, territorial uh, uh, sovereignty. So it's up to Turkey. I mean, after the election, because I don't think anything can happen before, It's up to Turkey to, to consider the new government, whatever, I mean, Erdogan or, or the current opposition. It's up to Turkey to say, look, what's my interest there? I mean, uh, if, if they, they abandon the revisionism that they have uh, expressed so intensely these three years, if they, uh, they abandon the revisionism, I think there is no problem with the other countries, Israel, Greece, Of course, they have to recognize Cyprus as well, uh, because I mean, uh, this is an issue. Uh, and and but I think if if you are talking grand strategy, and if they they would like to be at the table, they have to make some concessions. It's interesting that you're mentioning Cyprus because, you know, when you think that the e the the EU has a member state that is still illegally occupied, to many people, it makes absolutely no sense. How is that allowed to continue? And how are, uh, how are these institutions like the EU or even the UN not focusing much more on resolving that issue, which has been one of the longest lasting issues in the UN, right? Absolutely. But the, the thing is that theoretically, Cyprus is a member of the European Union, the whole territory of Cyprus. Mm. But of course, in reality, there is the dividing line, the line of division. And also there are the threats coming from Turkey about the uh, dichotomy and maybe, I don't know, uh, unification and so on. I don't think these threats will be uh, materialized, uh, but it's bargaining cheap. 
Uh, having said that, uh, you know, uh, if a, con a conflict becomes protracted, solution is, is becoming also more difficult. Uh, I'm afraid this can happen in Ukraine, for example. Uh, but on the other hand, the European Union have a leverage on Turkey if Turkey would like to have a better relationship with the European Union. But they have to appoint maybe a special representative, the, the European Union for Cyprus, and then to, uh, to explore the possibility of a viable solution. Mm -hmm. You know, now that you're mentioning the collaboration of the EU and the relations uh, in that region, with the recent conflict in Syria, we've seen how Turkey has attempted to instrumentalize and and sometimes even weaponize these migrants and use them as bargaining chips uh, with the EU. The repercussions of those actions almost always has had an impact directly on Greece. Uh, what you know? What responsibility does the EU have on this resurgence of tensions between Greece and Turkey? Uh, in my view, they do have uh, responsibilities because they have not intervened drastically and uh, with a clear plan to bear results. Because the problem with the EU is that the countries, uh, despite their membership to EU, continue having their own national interests. And they pursue their nationalists, and some are uh, more close to Turkey, some are more distant. Uh, but nevertheless, you cannot have a common denominator in this case. And they, 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 they have never had a dynamic approach towards Turkey. Of course, there is no carrot in the relationship of the EU with Turkey. Because nobody really believes that Turkey will ever become a member. Mm -hmm. uh, not in Turkey, not in Brussels. So if there was a real, let's say, perspective of Turkey becoming a member, I don't think this is realistic anymore. But you can, though, you can have uh, another kind of relationship that would be interested for both parties. But this is for the aftermath, I would say, of the war in Ukraine. Because the problem with EU is that up to now, they stick to a very inflexible framework of relations with members to become, let's say, future members. Uh, they ask a lot. And it's not realistic anymore for countries like Turkey to fulfill this criteria. Mm -hmm. And I don't think also for EU it would be interesting to have Turkey, a so big country with population that is bigger than any of the EU members. So we need a new framework of relationships with countries that are of interest. And Turkey is of interest for the European Union and the West. I'm not in favor of abandoning Turkey or losing Turkey. Mm -hmm. But it has to be on, on a basis of common understanding and uh, obligations and, uh, and rights. 
let's talk a little bit about NATO. Uh, obviously, before the work that you're doing now over at the 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 uh, the, the Foreign Relations Institute, you were a program manager at NATO, uh, NATO's diplomacy division for you know over 20 years with specific specialization in the the, the southern the, the the states, the member states of the southern flank as well as the Caucasus and Central Asia. Uh, that is very interesting, given the fact that. You know, over a year now, we've all been witnessing what's been going on between Russia and, and, and Ukraine. Tell me a little bit, you know, the experience you've had in that specific region. What was the strategy in the time that you were involved over there with these countries? What did you notice? Yeah, I will tell you in a nutshell, uh, NATO the countries, the, the member states of NATO, because NATO, NATO is the, the member, st- member states, okay? And also with a U.S. preponderant role. NATO made a very, uh, I would say, revolutionary decision in the 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed. There were two options. Either... Uh, to these countries closer to the alliance or let them to their own fate. We opted for the first option, and correctly so, because the countries of Eastern and Central Europe gradually became members of NATO. So they abide by the same rules and they became more stable and uh, more predictable to their neighbors. Anyway, it is a precondition if you become member of the alliance to resolve in a peaceful way your uh, differences with the neighbors. With the countries of Caucasus and Central Asia, meaning all the former republics of the Soviet Union, Uh, the deal was to offer them partnership. This form of partnership was, in my view at least, because I, as you said, I manage the portfolio of these two regions. It was to uh, bring them closer, not for offering membership, because it was impossible, I mean, to offer membership to Central Asian countries or even the Caucasus countries, but to offer them some know-how, how to modernize their armed forces and their societies. I mean, to facilitate their transition from the Soviet past to a modern democratic regime. I mean, it's not, I mean, that we have ideal democracies in these two regions, but nevertheless, uh, the, the idea was that if these countries have an interaction with NATO countries, they will become more predictable in their uh, foreign foreign policy uh, choices. And I think uh, to a very big, large extent, we succeeded with partners. So this was the main, the main idea of partnership. This is something that Russia disliked from the very beginning. It was not only about Putin, also Yeltsin at the time had objections. 
was, uh, Russia being a, a, an authoritarian country, they never understood the value of uh, democratization for foreign policy. Democracies tend to be more peaceful. And uh, despite the efforts of the alliance also to, to have a dialogue with Russia, Finally, we ended up with what we, we see now in Ukraine. It is, it is a tragedy. Uh, I, I would say vehemently reject what Russia is saying about NATO's expansion because we expect Russia's, let's say, concerns or... Uh, but uh, we consider that by having countries uh, predictable also around Russia, Russia would be more comfortable to, to develop a normal relationship with the West. You know, there, there, there is no doubt that what's happening uh, in Ukraine is, is, is horrible. We're talking about an illegal um, invasion, but there are quite a few academics that are arguing that perhaps NATO... Uh, uh, you know, pushed the line a little too much. They, it was this action was predictable and could have been avoided had NATO not pushed the agenda so much. Do you share that opinion at all, or do you think that the work, like you just expressed, the work that was done with these uh, either potential future members or partners was the best approach? Look, uh, I don't share the view. I mean, let, let, let me clear. I can, I mean, I, I, I know the arguments. Some of these arguments have some interesting justification. But on the other hand, having, let's say, lived from inside these two decades, I, I never realized that NATO had a, an attitude towards Russia that can be characterized an aggressive attitude. As I said, what NATO and the European Union had as a recipe, let's say, for these countries was to bring them closer to the common set of rules, what we call the international rules-based order. And Russia, being a member of the United Nations Security Council, is supposed also to guarantee these international rules-based order. Uh, having their priorities, their interests, and so on. But considering a threat for Russia, countries becoming more democratic, more predictable, I cannot understand, I mean, why these countries are a threat. I mean, Poland or the Baltic countries being members of NATO a threat to Russia because NATO is not by, by, by the, the, the founding act, is not an aggressive alliance. Mm -hmm. So it is a defensive alliance. So for Russia, having NATO members around is in a way is more predictable. Mm -hmm. But what I believe, and this was proved by what is happening in Ukraine, is that Putin 
had a real problem from beginning with the loss of the Soviet Union. And uh, he had him, let's say, to re-establish the, the cloud of the Soviet Union. And this is what he did by invading Ukraine. And he could not anticipate the failure because he believed in the myth that Russia was a country with very efficient armed forces, which has been proven wrong. Right. How do you see this uh, conflict evolving? Obviously, a lot of experts that we've spoken to uh, don't see this uh, resolving anytime soon. They believe more in the idea that this will be a long lasting conflict, uh, probably within maybe five, closer to 10 years. Uh, do you share that approach? Uh, is that is that where you evaluate this? Five long, yes, five to ten years. I would be very hesitant to agree. Uh, this is a nightmarish scenario. I mean, five to ten years. I think that the Russians cannot afford such a long conflict because the conflict terms are not going to change. Ukraine has a dynamic. It is a dynamic due not only to the Western support. I think it's a national dynamic. So they are not going to abandon this fight. And we have many examples in the past of what, what weaker countries winning a stronger country. And on the other hand, what we are noticing now is that Russia is not a strong country. Mm -hmm. Of course, they have a military machine and having, I mean, a very authoritarian decision-making, uh, there is no opposition to the war. There is silent opposition, maybe, but not vocal opposition. So they will continue. And so they, 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 they are indifferent of the losses because they, they don't value their people. This is a problem. So it, it will be long, but how long, I will, I will not say that long. I am of the view that the Russians for sure would like to influence the next U.S. election in 2024. Mm -hmm. uh, because they, they consider the Republican Party being uh, less supportive of the, of the war and of the Ukrainian side. So for sure they will go to, to 2024. And depending on the outcome of the elections, I mean, we will then see if there will be a negotiating solution or if it we will still have a conflict there. Mm -hmm. What role do you think China is going to play? There are certain uh, suspicions uh, this week and even last week that China may be sending heavy uh, weaponry to um, to Russia in order to assist their, uh, their, 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 their side of the conflict. Uh, are there any efforts being made to discuss with China and to bring China more towards, you know, the approach that the Western countries have taken on the conflict? Look, China is certainly interested in the, in the conflict, maybe not in the conflict itself, but in the dynamics that the conflict creates for the international relations post-US uh, 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 po, post uh, unipolar world, let's say. Mm -hmm. 
because China, uh, the current leadership, uh, believes that we are entering a multipolar world where they have a role to play. And of course they have a role to play because of their economic and military strength. Mm-hmm. If I, I, see, I see the dynamics this uh, month uh, and the support uh, for the time being not uh, material support, only political, diplomatic support towards Russia. Uh, in view, Russia will get involved in the solution and it will be the first big outing, if I may say so, of China in the international scene. Mm. Because up to now, China is only playing the economic role and they have avoided to play a, a political role in the international scene. Uh, the Russians, with this failed operation, offered them the ground to play a political role at the highest level. And they will take this advantage to the detriment of Russia, because Russia will not be a superpower anymore. They are not a superpower, but they consider to be one. So they will be overshadowed by China, and this is a defeat for Russia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so we will have maybe two new blocks, the Western bloc and the, the pro-China bloc. But it's still early to answer. You know, the Chinese up to now were very discreet in playing an international role. If this has changed, we it is to be seen. Interesting. How do you see this conflict being resolved? What in your what in your opinion uh, should be done? What steps should be uh, adopted in order to maybe bring both parties closer together and achieve this uh, this resolution quicker? Look, this conflict cannot be resolved but by a, an international conference. Uh, similar to the conference, the Paris conference that uh, established the post-Soviet Union world. So it has to be an international conference under UN auspices so that each party finds a place uh, that cannot humiliate. I, I, I don't see Russia's coming out humiliated mm-hmm. by a solution because it will be more dangerous. Right. And this is something we have to repeat to our Ukrainian friends. Uh, of course, they don't have to compromise their national interest. But on the other hand, they have to think that Russia cannot be humiliated. What does it mean? I mean, the diplomats have many solutions. But this has to be an international conference. We ca- I cannot see other other framework for a solution by russia not being humiliated are you suggesting that ukraine need to make concessions on the eastern part of ukraine that that uh, that russia has invaded are they going to have to give up some territory the eastern part i i don't i mean this is you know this this will be involved with during the negotiation we cannot anticipate mm-hmm. uh 
I don't see, for example, Crimea going back to Ukraine. This would be very difficult for the Russians to accept. Mm-hmm. Uh, the territories that they have occupied, it is proven they cannot govern them. They are very badly governed. So I don't, I don't see how they can keep them. Uh, but it's still early. I mean, for the time being, we will hear rather uh, intransigent positions than compromising positions. Uh, last question with NATO. Uh, you know, there's a, there is a, a recent expansion in the works, um, enlargement rather. Do you think that uh, everyone will vote in favor for Finland and, uh, and Sweden? I think at the end, yes. I don't see Turkey going to the next summit in July, uh, which will be held in Vilnius, Lithuania and uh, sticking to the position that Sweden and Finland cannot become members. I think they, it, they will have a big price to pay. And uh, I, I consider all these negotiations a bargaining chip, but in the end they will agree, I mean, to give the green light. Interesting. Uh, I know you're very busy and I know it's, uh, it's late evening over there in Greece. I want to thank you very much for all the time that you've taken. Uh, I want to invite everyone again to visit strategyinternational.org for all information on what this think tank has been doing. Where can people reach out to you, you know, or to um, uh, get informed on what you're doing? Uh, we have a very uh, lively website and uh, I think they can visit us or they can find me through LinkedIn and we are always very open to to new friends. The the website, just to remind everyone, it's edis.gr, right? I-D-I-S.gr to, 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 to get to know the, the, the beautiful work that is being done over there. Thank you once more. I appreciate your time. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We will see you all in the next episode. It was a very big pleasure to me. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast. Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.